Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good morning to some and good evening to others. Uh, my thoughts are with those who have been affected or know somebody who has been affected by the shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma yesterday. Um, it has been a particularly difficult day, but also a very difficult past month with the mass shootings. My name is Erica Quach, and I am a senior program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you for taking the time to join us for this very important conversation. We will begin with a moderated panel discussion and from there turn to Q&A from the audience. And with that, I now turn it over to tonight's moderator, Professor Maggie Lewis, who is not only a professor of law at Seton Hall University, but is also a public intellectuals program fellow with the National Committee. She has been instrumental in fighting against the China Initiative, as well as pushing this conversation and many others forward at the committee. Maggie, it is truly an honor to have you moderate tonight's program on the future of U.S.-China scientific research collaboration. Over to you. Thanks, Erica, and always a pleasure to do anything I can with the National Committee. So we have three fantastic panelists in only an hour, which means I'm going to keep my opening remarks very brief. As many people who are listening in today know, on February 23rd, the Justice Department officially ended the China Initiative and replaced it with what is being called the Strategy for Countering Nation-State Threats. However, there are lingering questions about the extent to which the initiative's uh, emphasis, for example, on using criminal law to protect research security is going to continue under this new strategy. In addition, of course, the ending formally of the initiative did not erase the societal costs in terms of a chilling effect on the pipeline for foreign talent and even the retention of foreign talent in the United States, as well as it did not erase the costs on individual researchers and their families that are still happening from the lingering effects of the China Initiative. And for that, I highly recommend, if you haven't seen it already, to watch Steve Orlins' interview with Professor Gong Chen of MIT which is available on the National Committee's website, and I think will be dropped into the chat as well. However, today our focus is on where are we today with US-China research collaboration and also giving thoughts for the future direction. I am joined first by Yang Yang Chang, a physicist and a writer who is currently hanging out with lawyers. She's a scholar in law and a fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. Second, Stephen Chu, a professor of physics and of molecular and cellular physiology at Stanford Medical School. He is the former US Secretary of Energy and the co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1997. Third, Eileen Guo, the senior reporter for features and investigations at MIT Technology Review, who has done extensive work on the China Initiative for which I am very grateful. So kicking it off, I wanna to go to Dr. Chung, there was a strong response from a number of groups to the China Initiative. We had academic groups, uh, scientific community outside of academia, legal advocacy groups like the ACLU, a number of AAPI advocacy groups. And as we look to trying to shape 
future policy. I'm wondering if you just kind of reflect on what we've learned as far as what were the encouraging aspects of those efforts and what are also some of the limitations? Thank you so much, Maggie. Um, Professor Lewis, as I should <laughs> refer to you. And thanks so much for the question. And I think, and as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a particle physicist by training and I got my uh, legal education from the best TV lawyers. And now I do work at the law school. So between both worlds and a lot with a lot of discussions with my former colleagues and my current colleagues, I think one of the most encouraging aspects coming out of the response to the China initiative is the political organizing that's come from the academic community. And in particular, many of them are first generation immigrants and scientists coming from China with a very similar background as I did. Some may be from my parents' generation, some from my generation. And many have, may have taken a relatively um, passive or laid back approach towards US politics and, and just politics in general and thought that their work is somewhat secluded from politics, but now through um, um, the political developments, many have like organized uh, open letters, have collaborated across disciplines and across universities and collaborated with civil rights groups and other kinds of community organizations that have reached beyond academia. And I think this is really a moment of political awakening for a lot of immigrant Chinese yeah. academic community and also just scientific community in general. And I think that is a very encouraging aspect. With that said, I think anyone has an entry point into political act activism or advocacy, and that entry point should not be seen as something that is isolated or has a singular cause, but should be placed into a larger and longer history and gain a more contextualized and capacious understanding, especially when something like the China Initiative that is really so complex and there are multiple interwining causes behind it. And sometimes it's being collapsed into a singular narrative or being tokenized in a lot of discussions as well. Of course, there is the racial aspect of it, but that of course is not new. This is one of the founding principles of this country or even before the country was founded since Columbus lowered his anchor and praised God. And, and of course, in the contemporary context, a lot of the um, persecutions and suspicions towards China, uh, ethnic Chinese academics in the US are also very similar to what is being placed say on the Muslim community after 9-11. And then related, but a separate issue towards race and racialization is academic freedom. And of course that has a long history um, that's not just limited to science and engineering, but there is a lot of connections with what some of the limitations, the government surveillance and um, persecutions on the social sciences and humanities, including right now with regards to teaching of history of critical race theory. And before that also, of course, in terms of learning Arabic languages and Middle Eastern studies after 9-11. And then the history of academic freedom over the past century or so is closely connected with state pressure as well as corporate interests, which brings to me to my third point with regards to the China Initiative and some of the root causes. That includes the privatization and commercialization of academic research, as well as the securitization of academic research, including how states are seeing science and scientists as strategic assets and, and, and placing scientific research and academic exchange into this great power competition narrative. So I think what is really important at this moment is not some like 
during this pandemic, we like to say going back to normal, but there is not such like a reversal of some policies or some kind of idealistic past that we can return to. There are geopolitical forces at play. There are also these trends of emerging, emerging technologies that have ethical and social consequences that academic communities and society at large need to contend with. So the path forward should really be rooted in what kind of future we as humanity, as a species want to live in, and then think about our individual roles and what are the causes and effects in terms of the individual actions and policies and what each person can contribute to can play. Thanks. And I, I want to pick up on this thread about this is a much longer issue than just the China initiative, which started in 2018, about the view of, of, of people from China and have some sort of Chinese heritage. Um, it goes back to the first McCarthy era um, and even earlier than that. And so here, I'd love, um, Ms. Bo, if you could, uh, in your research and your colleagues' research, you tried your best to make a data set of China initiative cases, which was not easy because the cases were not stamped as China initiative cases. But in the data set, a striking number, it was I think about 90% of the defendants were of Chinese heritage. And, uh, and for that, you know, that it might, you know, that was just such a high number that, you know, any explanation by the FBI and the Justice Department that there was no bias or prejudice was just, it was hard to swallow. But yet when Matt Olson, the Assistant uh, Attorney General for National Security ended the China Initiative, he recognized the perception of bias, was, but was emphatic that he found no influence of bias in any decision-making whatsoever. So that would include implicit or unconscious bias. And there also though has been conversation about what should the Justice Department and FBI do to have sort of bias mitigation training, but more generally, and this was a question we got about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts going forward to try to make it so, like Dr. Chung said, we, we, we change in the forward. We don't just try to revert back to a pre-China initiative period. Yeah, so it was 88% of defendants that we found um, when we looked at 77 cases uh, that were of Chinese heritage, which is, as you said, really a very high number. And this week, actually, the Office of the Director of National Security put out a really long-awaited report looking at privacy and civil liberties of people of Chinese origin and how they're affected when the intelligence community, including the FBI, investigates threats by the PRC. And again, what they found was that there was no discrimination based on race or national origins. They did acknowledge that there could be a disproportionate effect, but that was based on conduct. And so it's kind of the same narrative that has been repeated through the years um, during the China Initiative and also before the China Initiative. Uh, back in 2015, when uh, Dr. Xi Xiaoxing of Temple University was erroneously accused of sharing class, uh, not classified, sorry, but proprietary material with, uh, with Chinese companies, one of the end results of the activism at that point uh, in, in favor of, of Dr. Xi, who was ultimately the case was dropped. It was, you know, the, the FBI had gotten its science wrong. Um, but one of the outcomes was that DOJ promised that it would implement um, implicit bias training. And that was moving forward until 2018 when the Trump administration paused it all. And so this report that just came out, it again talks about the importance of this kind of training for the intelligence community. Um, I asked a spokesperson if any of it has actually gone forward at the Justice Department and uh, I didn't get a response. And all this is really um, 
it's important because as, as we've been talking about since the end of the China Initiative, there's this lingering question of, is this an actual end or is this a rebranding? And some of the issues as, as, um, uh, as Yang Yang was speaking to earlier as well is there are these cultural issues at play and, and within the Department of Justice, unless there are more cultural and structural changes in how they approach investigations and um, bias, it's really hard to see how scrutiny of, in this case, people of Chinese heritage, but really it could be anyone, um, as already mentioned, it, it's really hard to see how it's going to stop in a sustained way. What we might see is that there is more caution in this year uh, or you know, another two years because of this big political issue that, it, that the China Initiative has become. But as we've seen in the past with Dr. Win Ho Lee, with Dr. Sherry Chen, um, Dr. Xi Xiaoxing, and during the McCarthy era, it's, it's these cycles where this scrutiny comes back. And so I think that's really important to, to look at as we move forward. Thanks. And, and so given these um, pressures on the US side, you know, there's you know, questions about how much space the US is going to allow for collaboration. But at the same time, in his recent uh, big China policy address, Secretary Blinken said that Beijing is pursuing asymmetric decoupling, seeking to make China less dependent on the world and the world more dependent on China. And of course, we've seen Beijing welcoming STEM talent. And so I wanted to turn to Dr. Chu. And, and so on what extent are you seeing this pressure to separate or decouple coming from the United States and or China? And are there different pressures from different sides? And, and sort of how, what's your, what's your take on who's shutting the door? I would say that it is very asymmetric. Um, the agents, some of the agencies in, in the US government have explicitly told its scientists um, uh, there's going to be no more collaboration where there used to be collaboration just a few years ago. Uh, this is this is particularly the DOE. NASA has actually said we don't want you to collaborate years earlier than that. Uh, and certainly, understandably, the Department of Defense um, didn't want anything had anything to do with national security and collaboration. Very understandable. But what is happening is that world-class user facilities that are open to everybody, CERN is the most famous example of a user facility open internationally to all comers. You submit something and, and, and you form international collaborations. Eater, another one, uh, which has China and China is in CERN and in Eater. China is now, um, developed a number of world-class user facilities, a very large uh, radio telescope um, that, and the US one, which was old, had finally crumpled. Uh, and, and yet uh, scientists have said, we don't want you to use that. Uh, they've created the world-class hard X-ray laser in Shanghai Tech, which Department of Energy employees saying, we don't want you to collaborate. Not only that, we don't even want you to go to meetings uh, or help be on selection committees, things of that nature. So, so that seems to be, to be very one-sided relative to what I see in China, uh, where uh, I've never, you know, when they have meetings, when they have things, they try to engage me or others uh, they, I don't see any change in, in their attitude and in, in scientific conferences. Uh, now, the, so going to back to what prompted uh, 
Tony Blinken's question and um, to make pursuing an asymmetric decoupling to make China less dependent on the world and the world more dependent on China. So I can understand in certain things, uh, semiconductor dependency, um, China depends on a lot of trips designed in the US, even though they may be made in China. And there's a lot of IP connections in that. And when and so they feel very vulnerable when the United States says, we're not really sure we want to let um, Chinese companies use these chips. And so I see that as uh, a response from China. It makes sense that just as the United States and Europe doesn't want to be looked to China as the major supplier of batteries for electric vehicles. Uh, and so, so I think um, that has something to do with it, but it's separate from scientific collaboration. I think these are two different worlds of, of interdependency uh, or independence, or not, at least not being vulnerable in critical supply of materials or parts or things in the commercial world uh, versus what you want to do in science. And the, the major foundation in science is someone has an idea, publishes it. It's in the open literature. That spurs someone else to have an idea, publish it. And you just bootstrap up. And this is the driver of science. And the United States is not the sole owner of all the most creative stuff that is happening in science uh, in the world today. And for us to say, start to close doors where European countries, uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, other countries out of Europe are not doing this. I see it mostly penalizes the United States. That's so helpful. And, and so Dr. Chung is the other, um, not just scientist, but physicist on the panel. I'd be curious first if your observations are, are similar. And also this, this issue about, you know, there's, there's going to be guardrails, right, in the US and probably in China too. It's not just open science, you know, take anything you want, cross borders. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, how to kind of create those guardrails that there are legitimate national security issues connected to research and development, but still allowing space for the, um, the strength of, of having great minds across countries collaborate. Yeah, that's such a great and, and question, but it's also really difficult and, and complex. And then I think one, one word that um, a lot of US policymakers like to say is like, oh, uh, the Chinese policies lack re reciprocity, that our openness is not being reciprocated. And I think that is a really interesting statement to make um, as a justification for, for closing doors, because if openness is good, then just because maybe the Chinese government is not implementing similar measures doesn't mean that the US government should um, and then I think um, for in terms of uh, openness or not in China, it's, it's a complex thing, of course, like chi chi Chinese government and society is a different type of political system and we shouldn't draw false equivalencies between authoritarian society and, and the political system here. And, and in general, because of the nature of the political system, there are more restrictions and the chi uh, chi Chinese society has never had a kind of open uh, immigration policy, uh, a kind of immigration policy as the US has. And with COVID-19, there has been a lot more restrictions. And so the Chinese society is not necessarily sealing itself 
off from the rest of the world, that is not correct. But it, it, the government is certainly increasingly using the border as a, as a tool for, for political control in terms of the flow of people, commerce, as well as ideas to an extent. And, and that is a reality that needs to be contended with. And then of course, a lot of international students who are studying in China now are barred from re-entering the country. And that is a very serious issue that needs to be acknowledged. Of course, none of these are, are justifications for the US government to, to do similar, to take similar measures. However, I think it is also important to acknowledge as Professor Lewis, as you mentioned, unlike scientific collaborations also, it's not a universal good. It's not even neutral. Like science by itself is not a universal good or neutral. It is social and it's political and it's consequences. So there are uh, scientific collaborations cross borders that raise ethical questions. Uh, one that is more uh, specific and, and easier to understand is, for example, there are US-based scientists who may have collaborated with Chinese entities, including Chinese state security in terms of devising these genetic surveillance tools or facial recognition tools or other types of biometric surveillance tools. And these are, of course, uh, harmful and it's and this kind of work is wrong. But I think it is not enough to simply say, oh, we'll bar these kinds of collaborations. The more important question to ask is, why would there be US scientists who have this ability to collaborate with Chinese state security in the first place? Why is this work being pursued in the first place anywhere in the world under any kind of political system when this technology can cause harm? And so that, and that, that is one aspect. And that is actually similarly almost like the easier question. The more uh, There is a broader question with regards to the nature of political systems and complicity in systems of oppression. And I think um, Dr. Chu mentioned CERN, which the European Center for Nuclear Research, where the Large Hadron Collider is located, where I spent over a decade of my physics career and it's facing this very acute question with regards to Russian invasion of Ukraine. What, do, what does this collaboration do with regards to its collaborations with Russian scientists and more particularly with Russian, Russia-based Russian institutions that are funded by the Russian state? And so there are similar questions that can be asked with regards to um, the complicities in um, just by this na nature of collaboration alone or um, is a tacit approval of certain uh, the certain form of governance? What kind of atrocities does a government needs to make for this kind of collaboration to be no longer ethical? And I, of course, this is not a black and white answer, right? Of course, scientists shouldn't be penalized just because of where they were born or their citizenship either. But these are questions that cannot be evaded either and these needs to be asked. But the more important question, uh, the more important baseline is the answers cannot come from simply erecting a border because systems of oppression as well as harms and risks from emerging technologies cannot be contained by an arbitrary political boundary. But we need to con contend with our positions in systems of oppression and see our roles in it. Yeah, can, I, so can I make a comment yeah. about that? Um, I, I see it perhaps a little bit you know, maybe simple as what Yang said, um, regard to Russian scientists at CERN, um, my view would be, unless these Russian scientists are actively supporting Putin and his regime, right? If they're completely apolitical and they're not known to be a Putin supporter, you know, I, I don't see why one should say to Russian scientists, you're no longer invited. Uh, to be there, and uh, and it's um, in the deepest, darkest part of the Cold War in the fifties, and during the missile crisis uh, during Kennedy's administration, where it looked like, not it looked like in hindsight, it was very close to nuclear war. 
the back door of negotiation were the American and the Russian physicists who trusted each other. And they, they were able to lower the temperature. And so, and, and so this is something where, um, again, if, if there's a scientist who's outspoken advocate of invading Ukraine or supporting Putin, that's different. Uh, but if they're just physicists and, and they themselves could be perhaps as equally horrified as we are about what is happening in Ukraine, you know, then to, to start this and say, well, everybody's casting the same, you know, it's, it's does remind me of this reaction of Japanese internment of third generation Japanese not being trusted, third generation Americans who are Japanese heritage <laughs> being interned, not only second generations. That is a great plug for people to people relations, which of course is foundational to the national committee. And I, as someone who's so saddened that Fulbright China doesn't have seem to have any hope of being restarted soon, but that we need to have communications across various groups to try to keep the wheels on the relationship. So I'm interested from the, the journalist of, of the group that um, this idea about that the United States is going to have to continue to um, hopefully evolve, not devolve in its policymaking as new concerns arise with different kinds of research and, and relationship with China. But one of the themes of your work of, across areas is government accountability and transparency, and not just with the China initiative. And so I'm, um, I'm wondering, um, first of all, we got a question about this FBI statement about the 2000 investigations or more than 2000 investigations, which we've heard now for several years, and yet two more investigations are being opened every day. Um, sort of is how can you as a journalist or how can other groups try to increase transparency and accountability and, and maybe just even a little bit about is the different roles of the scientific community that we're hearing from the academics, the journalists, as we sort of chart a path forward to have as um, hopefully um, at least a, a policy that dials back the China threat rhetoric and focuses on, on what are sort of real legitimate identifiable national security concerns. Those are really great and uh, really tough questions. Um, so let me let me see where to start. Um, I think what's been really key to, to change and some level of accountability in, in regards to the China Initiative has been the activists. Um, you know, the, the scientists themselves, the activists that have come up and supported them, um, they're really the, the watchdogs that have been saying from the beginning when I, I think in 2000, 19, um, the first cases were uh, MD Anderson um, had several several uh, professors and, and researchers that, that were fired and that news came out. And so I think as soon as that happened, there was this mobilization and speaking to um, Yang Yang's point earlier, like a lot of that mobilization actually first started among activists that had been, um, that had come together when Dr. Chen and Dr. Shi Xiaoxing uh, had, had faced their legal challenges and some of them had come together even earlier to support Dr. Wen Ho Lee when he was imprisoned. And so I think the civil rights groups, the scientists, the academics that are speaking out and um, will, I think, continue to speak out, I'm certain, um, are really the front lines and, and need to continue to do so and have been doing everything really uh, well. Um, the one thing that I'll add from journalism is, you know, I think my job is is really to question everything. Um, all of the, 
the statements that are put out, the, the facts that we believe to be facts, um, the statistics even, this, there's a commonly cited statistic, I think it's, um, actually I'm not going to try and remember because I'll get it wrong, but there's a, there's a statistic about how much IP theft is actually, uh, actually originates from China every year. And, and where do these numbers come from? Where do these things that we take as facts come from, I think is, is a really important question. And in terms of the, you know, the narrative of the China threat, I think one of the really important things uh, and lessons from journalism that I think is applicable everywhere is to think about whose language are we using to describe these kinds of issues and, and whose agenda does that language serve? And, and going back to the crux of our reporting um, is on the other hand, what if we do adopt that language for a moment? What if we do adopt the, uh, perspective and, and hold the government accountable to its own statements. And that's really where we started um, with our reporting and building out this database. What if we looked at the China initiative from the government's goals of actually combating economic espionage and national security threats? Um, and, and to the question in, in the Q&A, that's tough, not always possible. Um, the question about 2,000 new cases uh, that, are, that are being that are underway with two new cases being open per day. I think there are going to be challenges um, in, in finding out some of the specifics, especially when counterintelligence or national security is involved. There's always just so much more secrecy, but I think even bringing up the question and continuing to bring up the question is important. Um, and then the, the final thing that I would say to policymakers, if there are any on this call uh, or that are listening, I think one of the fundamental concerns that's really at play, and Dr. Chu spoke to this earlier, is really about the US fear of losing the innovation race. And I think what we're not doing well and need to change is um, making the US a better place for research, for innovation, and that's that's a policy issue. That's an issue of how much basic research is being funded. Um, what we focus on, of course, openness, as, as we're talking about here, uh, but also it's an issue of immigration policy and how easy do we actually make it for people to come and to stay um, and do research. And, and these are things that we're not doing a very good job of. So much in there. So I'm going to, and I'm starting to weave in questions and please people um, who are watching list your, put your questions in the Q&A. Uh, and so thinking of the policy response, because there's many layers going on at once. So we have action in Congress, and we got uh, a question um, from Kylie, who's a member of AASF, Asian American Scholars Forum, highly recommend their work. They're one of the groups that was created because unfortunately of this focus um, on, uh, on security threats and research in China, and they do um, great webinars. But uh, he brings up that we have both the America Competes Act, which is an acronym, and USICA coming from the House and the Senate, and the reconciliation process is underway with approximately 100 members of Congress sorting through thousands of pages of legislation, which includes language, for example, on talent plans, one draft called the malign talent plans from certain country, but there's action by Congress. Simultaneously with that, 
We have OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House that is working um, with a whole bunch of the three-letter grant-making agencies, NIH, NSF, DOE, DOE, keep going, on um, research security under NSPM 33, the National Security Presidential Memorandum 33 on research security. So there's a lot of action outside of the lawmaking in Congress, but with respect to rulemaking, trying to hopefully streamline and clarify grant reporting requirements across different agencies. So there's a whole mess going on. So I'm wondering if maybe one of our, our scientists can um, speak to sort of where in this whole mess, mess do you see um, points that you think are worthwhile and should be um, pushed through is either actual law or policy and which parts of, of this conversation uh, do you find perhaps more concerning and something that hopefully won't make it into the final version? Well, let, let me start. I think there's a, uh, a great heterogeneity in um, uh, this issue. This issue being uh, the knowledge that the Chinese government does want to still intellectual property rights. It's mostly commercial of all the cases being opened, uh, think of the number of formal charges that uh, go to trial rather than the Justice Department dropping them. There's just a handful. Uh, if you listen to Christopher Ray, there must be 10,000, you know, several years ago, so it's 5,000 cases open. Opening a file doesn't mean there's any there there. And for most of the cases in academia versus industrial spine, in academia, most of the cases, there's, they, they devolve into a gotcha, you didn't declare something, rather than evidence of real export of information before it was ready to be published or, or confidential information or classified information. So, so there's this big mismatch between this rhetoric and what actually is being, goes to trial and is being formally charged that I think we, we have to really be conscious of um, what is it driven by? It's driven by China's first emerging as an economic competitor and the government cooperating with uh, unscrupulous economic competition, okay? But the competition itself, you, you know, there was an anti-Japanese sentiment 30 years ago when Japan was rising as an industrial power uh, but now it's compounded by the fact that uh, China's uh, becoming a Cold War adversary as well, uh, due to the actions of the Chinese government, uh, principally, I would say that's also not symmetric. Uh, and, and so, so, but this is being convolved with academic professors, Chinese American professors in the United States as being now under suspicion. And that's the part that's scary. So uh, are all the Russian American professors going to be under suspicion because of uh, Russia's incredible behavior in the invasion of in their invasion of Ukraine? Um, you know, it, that would also make no sense. Uh, it goes back to some of the other statements that were made earlier. You know, there is a racial undertone. <laughs> as to who you're going to pick on uh, as well that's going on. 
Yeah, if I uh, if I may follow up quickly on this, and I think with a lot of these uh, legislations that, of course, there is to be a re reconciliation process, and of course, different legislatures legislators were slipping in their own China-related agendas like COVID-19 origin search, and then how that would affect scientific collaborations between the two countries and this and that. And so that is a really concerning aspect. But I think overall, I think I think an underlying concerning aspect is how state-centric these narratives are, and that partly relates to on Eileen's point earlier, this language, and the language reflects a certain way of thinking, and how the language of the state, which means the logic of the state, is being assumed as axiomatic, that science and scientists are being seen as state assets and state interests, and, and how this kind of national interest and national competitiveness, which inevitably assumes that, the board, that there is something like the border as a tool of, 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 of political competitiveness, as a, as a, as a filter for for people, for bodies, as a ranking of professions and, and as a tool of racial capitalism. And that is extremely harmful. And that is actually a very intellectually lazy and logically inconsistent way of thinking and is ultimately morally indefensible. So I think it's really important to shift this narrative from one of artificial scarcity to one of abundance, to think of people on the other side of an artificial division as, as our kin. And from that standpoint, I think it is also very important for like power does not yield power without pressure. So it's not necessarily so much about how we convince and any individual policymakers, but how as academia, we can organize and leverage our own power as the primary site of knowledge production and knowledge dissemination. There is a very critical function that academia plays and only academia plays, and similarly for journalism as well. And and, and as uh, Dr. Chu mentioned earlier, for example, during the height of the Cold War, there are individual uh, American scientists and European scientists who push their national governments to open up ways of collaboration and communication with Soviet Union scientists. And, and I think so what are the bills and laws that are already in place is one thing, but it's another to say how much the state is, how much of these policies are justifying state surveillance and state pressure on academic activity and how much the ac academic community shouldn't yield this part of self-governance and freedom to the state. Yeah, one and, of the and things this, I think one of the things that I think Congress and many people who are not scientists don't understand is, uh, suppose you're a professor in the United States, and I have Chinese graduate students, I have Taiwanese graduate students. Uh, and if I got the impression that before we were ready to go public or publish, that somehow information was going over to someone uh, in another institution, and forget about whether it's China or any other place, this is not good. <laughs> and, and, and if there's a, a significant amount of that going as being suspected by some members of the, uh, the FBI, uh, one would know about it. Okay, and, and, and um, because, you know, it's, it's self preservation, we want to publish something so we can get the next grant. <laughs> and, 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 uh, uh, and we're be and so this is being confused as though these professors are kind of helping this information go out. No, no, it's, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and, and, and we would be very alert to that if there was evidence that, oh my gosh, you know, we were thinking about that a year ago, we didn't let on what's going on here. And now all of a sudden, you know, you know, there's 
a few percent, maybe 10%, maybe less, maybe more, I don't know, who have scientists who are somewhat unscrupulous and want to find out what people are doing before they're ready to share, okay? But, but to say that this is cast in uh, this country especially, or, or this ethnic heritage especially is, is this is, uh, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, and here I would applaud the work of uh, Representative Judy Chu and others at KPAC, the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. I know she's actually on the conference committee, um, really trying to make it so the language that gets baked in um, is not, again, fueling this idea of the other threat, but instead trying to focus on you know, where should we have some um, understandable limitations and guardrails on um, collaboration and, and what are we trying to protect. Uh, and also just going back, there was the question of, uh, about IP and the amount stolen. So Mark Cohen at uh, Berkeley, wonderful, has written about the $600 billion echo chamber because there's this number of $600 billion of IP theft annually. But of course, you know, there's big questions about, you know, what do we count as a U.S. You know, entity? How do, we, how do we take that number? How is it calculated? So I recommend his work on this as we try to not just throw around big numbers and then have them. Uh, become self-reinforcing uh, by adopting um, that government language. So we've got a bunch of great questions um, coming in. Um, I, I'm gonna, um, first, we had one from um, Jeff Lehman at NYU Shanghai, which I think we've largely um, answered, but I think it, it impacts some of what we've been doing, that the China Initiative mushed together classified research security, proprietary commercial research, and basic science as a collaborative public good. Having done so, it understandably went on to equate espionage, commercial theft of IP, and research misconduct. Rebecca Kaiser at NSF commissioned the Jason Report, which seemed to point in a healthy direction of treating those three domains differently from one another. Is there any sign that a pivot in that direction will take place? So I think we've started unpacking that there's a lot of different things going on here. So I want to put that out there. And at the same time, a question which is important um, to all of uh, humanity, uh, anonymous question put in that facing such a dismal environment in US-China relations, do you think there is much room for collaboration in areas such as cancer research or other areas where human health can benefit? Or are these areas that you expect will be curtailed even more? And of course, I'd add COVID, monkeypox, you name it, to that uh, question about huge health issues. Um, so any of those, if anyone wants to jump in as we have about a little over 15 minutes left. Um, yeah, so so maybe I'll uh, tie in the part about cancer research to the earlier point about IP, right? And then I think it is really interesting how much uh, the public are talking about intellectual property and access to uh, biomedicine because of the COVID-19 pandemic and how disappointing the outcome is. So I think one thing that is really important to understand is that laws, as, as we discuss in society, they are not like the second law of third world dynamics or something. It's not like immutable. And they, they are made and they are social and they are political and they are made for a certain purpose. And, and a lot of our current understanding of commercialized technology are actually very, very new. Uh, in, in terms of how, how, how proprietary it is and, and what are the restrictions in terms of access. And a lot of things that the US government is accusing Chinese entities of doing in terms of stealing technologies or stealing talent. The US, uh, the United States, when it was newly independent from Great Britain, also broke a lot of immigration and export control role, uh, rules in Europe in order to acquire advanced technology and, te uh, and technicians. And so in that context, a lot of times IP um, enforcement is correlated with 
the level of economic development more than the legal traditions or political systems of a country. And that is something to, un uh, to understand with regards to China now as well. But more importantly, the fundamental question is something cannot be stolen unless it is owned first. So this, uh, this, this concept, this public imagination of China or any other country, Japan is stealing US technology. It, it, it reflects a certain mindset that somehow knowledge is this kind of finite resource that once it is being acquired or accessed by someone else, it is a loss to the South. And that is a fundamentally not just wrong, but dangerous mindset, as we've seen over the COVID-19 pandemic, that nations like the human body are all porous entities, and no one is safe unless everyone is safe. No one is safe unless the most marginalized, most vulnerable members of a society are protected. So unless we change this fundamental mindset, we are going to force ourselves into these logically, lo logical corners and cling onto some artificial divisions in a form of a border to affirm our position. And that is dangerous and that is would be less hopeful than the capacious flourishing future that we should all deserve. Dr. Chu, any thoughts? Well, um, I agree with a lot of what most of what uh, Yan said. I think I want to add a little personal thing about scientific, you know, it's, yes, US science is very, very strong. But the perception that Chinese science is still in the backwater is not fully true. And in a couple of instances in the last couple of years, we've had, you know, we asked for materials of, of someone we know in China, they give them to us. It's not even a formal collaboration. They're not asking why. And one or two of these instances, it led to a patent, but their name is not on the patent or, or on the paper. And similarly, I always felt free if I could help some other person in any country or any other place that this is this is what you do, okay? Uh, and the public doesn't understand that there's a lot of that going on, or there used to be a lot of it going on, but it seems to be being squashed, right? And 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 that's something that I wish. You know, I think only scientists might understand that uh, there's a level of cooperation and willingness to give advice and to help other people in their research where you're not demanding co-authorship, you're not demanding share of intellectual property rights, you're not demanding anything. And do, do we want governments to try to squash this? Uh, and again, eventually it's all published. And so we're not talking about proprietary research, we're not talking about classified research. And the only issue is, do people have improper early knowledge before they should? Yeah, and even just sort of um, one of the things that's been discussed in, in my work with the scientific community, which I greatly enjoyed, I just wish it wasn't necessary, um, is about, you know, so what, have, what are sort of the normal academic things that researchers and academics in general do? They write letters of recommendation, they um, do tenure review files, they give speeches, and making sure that those sort of, there's a safe harbor, that it's clear what is sort of normal academic collaboration that doesn't even get close to touching any areas of, of national security and so some, of educating of policymakers of how academia works. 
Um, and here I want to turn back to Eileen Guo. We've got a, a question about uh, looking at holding funding agencies accountable, um, but also universities. And one thing that I find interesting is how universities are not monolithic entities, that there's often um, different incentives on the part of the administration and the faculty. And you have a general counsel's office, which job is to protect the university, which sometimes means not maybe being the best advocates for the faculty. And certainly with Professor Gang Chen, my sense is he was unique in having MIT fully fund his legal bills. And they had lawyers for Professor Chen, and they had separate counsel for the university itself at, um, I'm sure, a very high cost. But most of the researchers who have been academics who have been investigated and prosecuted have been shouldering those costs themselves um, with no support from their universities. Um, and then even if they are cleared, they still have not just the um, financial toll, but of course the emotional and sometimes physical toll. So I'm just wondering if you've been able to see, um, are there pushes to try to get more accountability, not just from universities, but from the, um, the, the grant making agencies and what sort of um, steps um, could be taken to um, try to chart a better path because these cases aren't gonna go away entirely. Yeah, I can speak a little bit more to the university side, um, but one of the things that we have been starting to see through the cases that we tracked is that there, there's a pretty big difference uh, between whether or not a case even, let me, let me back up, there's a pretty big difference between whether an investigation turns into something more based on how the university responds. And so I spoke to a former investigator for the NSF that told me that, you know, how he even approaches a university is very different based on a whole host of factors, including if a university has a, has a faculty senate, if it has a strong faculty senate, um, if he already has relationships with, you know, individuals in, in the office that, that oversees how grants are, are, over, uh, are, are, are run and compliance is, is dealt with. So there's all of these different factors that, that come into play. And, and one of the things that we've also seen um, with some of these cases uh, that have been prosecuted and have been announced later on is that uh, community members have been rallying around professors and and at some points it comes earlier at some points it comes later and that also seems to um, not have a factor necessarily on the outcome of the case but it certainly has an outcome for for the professor and, and for how the university is being viewed within the community and I think um, just going off of Yang Yang's earlier point about the the mobilization that has happened around this, I think that's a factor that hasn't gotten enough attention and is something that um, for future activists uh, and, and people that are concerned about this issue is, is something to, to think about in your communities. Thoughts from other panelists or? You all, um, <laughs> your comment about the faculty senate is uh, very timely. Um, I'm a member of the Senate and the Senate steering committee, and we just had a major part of four faculty meetings discussing conflict of interest and conflict of commitment, which was driven by federal agencies. And, and many of us feel that settling to the lowest common denominator, the Christopher Ray's, the you know, the NIH things is just the wrong thing to do. If they insist on doing it, we the faculty and the universities have to comply, but but to to just bend to the more extreme versions that are not official policy is something some universities do and others push back. MIT is a shining example of, of pushing back 
in a very important way. Uh, and I wish um, more universities would do that rather than just saying, okay, if that's what they want, that's what they want. Uh, and oh, by the way, if one agency wants this and the other agency wants that, we'll just go to the common denominator and we'll require all, all the faculty, regardless who they're being funded to comply. And, and what that is, is it, it just increases the amount of requirements of compliance and, and other things and not really addressing the concerns of, of intellectual property theft. If I may comment quickly, I think another issue with regards to this um, differentiation in terms of response from universities that have individual members of their communities being implicated in the China initiative is it reflected the, the disparities with, within academia itself. Like um, it's a very unique case as uh, Eileen mentioned with, with Professor Gang Chen at MIT, but it takes like a senior scientist well-respected in his community and an extremely rich elite institution like MIT that has this kind of resources. Like for a, a, a state, a state school with a, a certain kind of a contentious relationship with the state legislature, for example, and, and also other forms of institutions. And also like of in, in terms of academia itself, the kind of stratification of academic labor. So for a tenured professor has different kinds of protection compared with non-tenured or adjunct on faculty, let alone um, graduate students and um, Professor Gang Chen is a, a naturalized U.S. citizen for international members who are implicated. And so I think what is very important is to reflect on when we see positive examples to see how much of that is dependent on these ad hoc um, elements in terms of individual administrators' goodwill or individual prestige or individual uh, connections and really see how that is unreliable and how academic community can organize in a way that codifies these kinds of support so that any individual who are unfairly implicated in these kinds of government initiatives can enjoy similar levels of protection. And on this point of uh, the the having, you know, of course, you're going to have conflict of interests and policies that's that's necessary, and how to shape those and to make them so that they are not so onerous um, in a way that isn't necessary. That it essentially becomes decoupling by bureaucracy. That um, you know, to to get through the the bureaucratic hoops, you're spending more time on the paperwork than you are on the project that you were trying to pursue. So I see that as one of the challenges going forward as well, the sort of streamlining to make it so people can, um, who, uh, who are working on, whether it be hydrogels or nanotechnology, have space to do that and not just worry about, um, are they complying with the grants? And is it worth getting those government grants? Because I've also heard a number of people who are saying, I'm just shying away in particular from getting grants, um, maybe government in general or from, from certain agencies. Um, and, and we have just a, a few minutes left here. And you know, one thing that's come up too is you know, again and again in our conversation is advocacy. And, and again, I've been so happy to see groups like ACLU and the Brennan Center um, that aren't focused on Asian American Pacific Islander you know, communities um, really involved too, because these are issues that should not be on the shoulders of the um, communities, of people of Chinese descent or AAPI more generally, because it affects everyone's civil liberties. And this goes back to, of course, you know, similar concerns or related on after 9-11 with, with different um, communities that have 
ties to certain foreign countries of concern. And so here, um, most of the people watching today are not scientists and not investigative journalists. Um, and so I always want to end on a kind of a hopeful note that you know one thing with the China Initiative was a lot of people just didn't even know it existed, right? And so going forward, because we don't want to just say, "Woo, done with that," like you know everything's fine and dandy because it's not. What advice would you give for people who are watching and, and want to help, whether it be with encouraging better immigration policies to get talent, whether it be with um, trying to increase um, um, support for science, because we do need more scientists that are homegrown in the US too. Um, any thoughts about how people can be productive and, and helpful in this, in this longer term effort? Well, let me, let me begin, I'll try to be very brief. Um... I was part of a, a committee report uh, called Rising Above the Gathering Storm. And in that report, and, and we, we spent a lot of time, the question put before the committee uh, by Congress was, you know, what can the United States do uh, to, to flourish in an ever flat, ever competitive world? And in, and in particular, in a much more competitive uh, science and technology world. And, um, and one of the things we said is anybody who gets a PhD, who's a foreign student who gets a PhD in American university should have the green card stapled to their diploma. <laughs> I haven't really changed from that. I, I may have changed it. Well, maybe the upper half, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I think uh, the United States has benefited so much from immigrant, uh, graduate students or postdocs who came to the United States for many, many reasons, stayed in the United States and raised their families in the United States uh, and, and, and added to all the, all the things that like computers and semiconductors and all this stuff. And so we are in danger of threatening that supply and, and, it, and the, this anti-Chinese thing is, is, is being felt and seen, well, the United States, even to Europeans, is not the welcoming country we thought it was or used to be. And so that's something else that, on an optimistic note, I, I would hope that the Congress and, and, and current and future administration will recognize how much the United States has benefited from this. And even if they go back to their original countries, there is a, a deeper appreciation, understanding of, of, of our country. But for the most part, they stay. <laughs> yeah, and, and if I may, um, I think, well, migration is a human right. So anyone should be free to leave and free to stay, regardless of their profession and level of education. And so I think on that point, um, it also relates to for the China Initiative, any individual, like for example, people in, in this audience or anyone, this is not just something that affects people of Chinese origin or people who are in science or academic researchers, because it touches on so many issues like immigration policy, like race, like criminal justice, like academic freedom, like the role of uh, access to science and technology and intellectual property, and in general, how we imagine future and relationships between nations and between individuals and institutions. And so I think what is really important is for any person to see 
them to reflect on their own roles in these intertwined webs of power and oppression and systemic injustices, and to really reflect on their own complicities, recognize their responsibility, organize and leverage their power. Young Young really said everything that I wanted to say, but in a much more poetic way. Um, I think there's a there's a, everyone can do a lot to make the environment here more open uh, and more equitable. And so I think really that's what everyone should be doing at, at a baseline. Well, with that, I want to thank all of our panelists. Um, I want to thank the National Committee and everyone who's been working behind the scenes to make this webinar happen. It is not going to be the last webinar on these issues, that I am sure. Um, and I just really want to you know, encourage people to stay involved because uh, talk to your members of Congress, write them, you know, because there is a lot that um, is being decided right now uh, that will have ramifications for years to come. Because especially when something is baked into a law, it's hard to change. And so with that, um, uh, my role as moderator is done. Um, it's been a joy. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.